Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 25 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In this episode, we'll look at the changes to the Freedom of Information Act, which will be implemented through the Protection of Freedoms Bill, as well as the latest FOI decisions from December to February 2011. We're going to focus on the proposals to require data sets to be published and made available for reuse, the new definition of publicly owned company, the first information commissioner undertaking under FOI, reduction costs under the fees regulations, disclosure of information about employees, particularly their names, bonus payments, compromise agreements and retirement packages, and disclosure of contract incentives. On the 7th of January 2011, the Ministry of Justice announced plans to change the FOI regime in a number of ways. We discuss these in detail in episode 24. Work has now started on implementing these changes, mainly through the Protection of Freedoms Bill. We now know that the previous Labour government's proposals announced last year to extend FOI to three bodies, namely the Association of Chief Police Officers, UCAS and the Financial Ombudsman Service, is going to be implemented by the Coalition Agreement. On the 28th of February, the Justice Minister Nick Herbert confirmed that an order would be placed before Parliament in the spring to implement the extension of FOI to ACPO. He said that the order would come into force as soon as reasonably practicable. According to ACPO, they're working on an implementation date of October this year. No dates have been announced, though, in respect of the other two bodies mentioned above. As discussed in the previous podcast, 20 other organisations are being consulted, including the Law Society and the Bar Council, with a view to adding them to the list of FOI bodies. The government also announced in January that freedom of information would be amended to ensure that public authorities proactively release data in a way that allows businesses to reuse that information for social and commercial purposes. This was not welcome news for many public authorities who feel that they're inundated with requests for information from the private sector where they are effectively asked to do research for them or to supply information which is then sold on to other public authorities. These proposals will be given legislative force through the Protection of Freedoms Bill which is currently going through Parliament. Clause 92 of the Bill will amend Section 11 of FOI. At present, Section 11 allows a requester to choose the format of the information to be supplied to him. As long as this is reasonably practical, the public authority must give effect to his preference. In future, where a request is made for information held by a public authority that is a data set or forms part of a data set, that information must be communicated to the applicant in an electronic form that is capable of reuse. This is a machine-readable form using open standards which enables its reuse and manipulation. Thus, in future, authorities will be prevented from turning an Excel spreadsheet into a PDF before releasing it in order to stop recipients conducting their own analysis or reformatting the data. This has been known to happen, especially to requests from commercial companies. But what is a data set? This is a collection of information held in electronic form where all or most of the information meets the criteria which are set out in the new Section 11.5 of the Freedom of Information Act. Namely, it has to be obtained or recorded by a public authority for the purposes of providing the authority with information in connection with the provision of a service by the authority or the carrying out of any other function. 
The information is factual in nature and is not the subject of interpretation or analysis other than calculation, in other words, that it's raw or source data, and that it should not be an official statistic. Finally, the information within the dataset has not been materially altered since it was obtained or recorded. Datasets which have had value added to them or which have been materially altered, for example, in the form of analysis, representation or other application or expertise, would not fall within the definition. Examples of the types of datasets which meet the definition include postcodes and references used to identify properties, spend information, information about job roles within a public authority, maybe even a list of schools within the area and key contact details. There are two requirements within the new provisions. Firstly, to disclose information in a reusable format and secondly, to allow reuse of the information where it contains copyright material. But there's no absolute duty for the datasets to be allowed to be reused. Section 11a provides for four criteria which must be met for the new section to apply. Firstly, that a person must have made a request for the dataset. Secondly, that the dataset requested includes a relevant copyright work. Thirdly, that the public authority is the only owner of the relevant copyright work. In other words, it should not be jointly owned or owned by another party. And finally, that the public authority is communicating the information under FOI. In other words, it should not be exempt information. New Section 11, Subsection 2 provides that when communicating a dataset to an applicant which contains copyright material, the public authority must make the dataset available for reuse in accordance with the terms of a specified license. The terms of such a license will be specified in a new Section 45 Code of Practice. It's not known whether such licenses will allow public authorities to charge for reuse. The bill also requires public authorities to proactively publish datasets which have been requested. Under Section 19, publication schemes must include a requirement for the public authority to publish any dataset it holds, which has been requested by the applicant, together with an updated version of the dataset if it exists. All datasets published in this way will have to be in electronic form and will once again, where they contain copyright work, be allowed to be reused in accordance with the terms of a specified license. The licenses will be published as part of a new Section 45 Code of Practice. Clause 92 amends Section 45, so it allows the Secretary of State to make a number of codes of practice under Section 45. These new requirements will no doubt mean more work for public authorities at a time when resources are scarce and staff are being reduced. There'll be a new code of practice to get to grips with, as well as a new publication scheme to adopt or produce. It'll be interesting to see the terms of the specified licence and to what extent, if at all, public authorities will be able to make a profit from allowing the reuse of datasets. The definition of a publicly owned company under Section 6 of FOI is also being amended by the Protection of Freedoms Bill. Section 6 subsection 1 will no longer only apply to bodies wholly owned by a FOI-listed authority, but also to those wholly owned by the wider public sector. Section 6 subsection 2 is adjusted so that it also privets around the concept of the wider public sector. The effect of this amendment is that even where a publicly owned company is owned by more than one public sector organisation, it will still be subject to the Act. This is a matter which was the subject of some confusion previously. 
For the first time, the Information Commissioner has required an organisation to sign an undertaking for the purpose of improving its freedom of information practices. Until now, the Information Commissioner has only required undertakings from organisations for data protection breaches. In December, the University of East Anglia signed a commitment to further improve the way it responds to freedom of information requests. The action follows the disclosure of emails from the university's Climate Research Unit in November 2009, which showed an apparent reluctance to respond to valid requests for information about the unit's involvement in ongoing climate research. The Vice-Chancellor of the University has now signed a formal undertaking to ensure that staff receive adequate training on the requirements of the Freedom of Information Act. The University has also committed to a review of its present systems for records management, particularly of emails. A full copy of the undertaking can be viewed on the Information Commissioner's website. Section 12 of the Freedom of Information Act, together with the fees regulations, mean that a public authority, when deciding to refuse a request on cost grounds, can only take account of the time it takes to determine whether information is held, to locate it, retrieve it and extract it. Some authorities have argued that the time it takes to redact information should also be allowed to be taken into account when deciding whether the £450 or £600 limit has been reached. On the 21st of January, the High Court held in Chief Constable of South Yorkshire and the Information Commissioner that when estimating the costs of complying with the request for information made under FOI, a public authority cannot consider the time it takes to redact exempt information from relevant documents. This is in line with previous decisions that we have discussed in episode 23. Section 40 provides an exemption from disclosure of personal data about the requester as well as that of third parties. With regards to the latter, the public authority must show that disclosure would breach one of the data protection principles. In other words, that it would be unfair or unlawful to disclose the information. In the past few months, information about senior public sector employees, especially when leaving employment, has come under the FOI spotlight. The recent tribunal decision in Bousfield and the Information Commissioner and Liverpool Women's NHS Trust concerned the refusal of a request for compromise agreements the Trust had entered into with doctors that had been paid off or taken voluntary early retirement. The tribunal upheld the Trust's refusal and the Commissioner's decision notice on the grounds that it was exempt under Section 40, Subsection 2. But there's no hard and fast rule about disclosing information about former senior employees whether in the form of compromise agreements or voluntary redundancies. The key question is, would disclosure be fair to the data subject? The answer depends on many factors, including the circumstances surrounding the individual's departure. In February, the Tribunal in Gibson and the Commissioner and Craven District Council ordered disclosure of information in a compromise agreement with the former Chief Executive insofar as it related to the use of public funds. In other words, the precise financial settlement was required to be disclosed. The remainder of the information, though, more personal information from personnel files, could be withheld on the basis of Section 40. In other words, tax codes and pensions contributions. The Tribunal agreed that generally compromise agreements should not be disclosed, but context is important. Here, the case concerned a very senior employee who left the Council's finances in disarray but the auditor had ultimately approved the settlement paid under the compromise agreement. 
The tribunal ruled a mere contractual agreement as to confidentiality does not suffice to render disclosure unlawful. As to fairness of the disclosure, the tribunal distinguished between information on the use of public funds and other information. It noted that compromise agreements are personnel matters generally attracting a stronger expectation of privacy. Although personnel information comes into existence as part of an employee's professional rather than personal activities, some of the information, such as pensions, contributions and tax arrangements, are nevertheless inherently private and attract a stronger degree of privacy. Ultimately, though, fairness and condition 6 were determined in similar terms. The tribunal found that the legitimate interests of the members of the public outweighed the prejudice to the rights and freedoms of the ex-chief executive only to the extent that the information concerned the use of public funds. This provides an illuminating contrast with other Section 40 cases before the tribunal on compromise or severance agreements. See, for example, Rob War and the Information Commissioner and Doncaster College, which we discussed in episode 16, where a journalist wanted information on the investigation into the former principal, including the reports drawn up during the inquiry. The other recent case on the personal data exemption is Pycroft and the Information Commissioner and Stroud District Council. The appellant wanted to know the package that was offered to the Director of Housing when he took early retirement. The context of the request was an auditor's report which observed that the council's former director did not ensure that staff had taken ownership of managing budgets and that there was an overspend on the housing revenue account for which he was ultimately responsible. In considering fairness under section 40 subsection 2, the tribunal noted that the pensions package is calculated by reference to the sum of past service and not just performance. It's not just a snapshot in time of a person's financial situation, disclosure of which would be more likely to be fair, especially where they cease employment in the public sector and have benefited from public money. Disclosure of a retirement package today, especially if index-linked, enabled that person's income to be calculated for the rest of their life long after they had ceased to be accountable to the public. The tribunal agreed with the commissioner that disclosure of this information would not be fair. The disputed information goes beyond directly the individual's role or decision-making process and relates to personal finances. The tribunal also observed that in the light of the strategic director's seniority and the problems with the HRA overspend, this would have been a high-profile retirement and that sufficient information was already in the public domain to enable the propriety and timing of such a retirement to be debated in any event without disclosure of the terms. This decision should be noted by those dealing with requests for information about retirement packages to allegedly poorly performing public sector employees. It shows that just because they have received public money does not mean disclosure of their information is automatically fair. The Information Commissioner's guidance on disclosure of employees' salaries states that public authorities need only disclose salary information within a £5,000 band unless exceptional circumstances arise. But what of bonus payments and performance-related pay in relation to public sector employees? The Tribunal's decision in Davis and the Information Commissioner and the Olympic Delivery Authority concerned a request for bonus payments, performance targets and target levels achieved in relation to senior staff at the Olympic Delivery Authority. In coming to its decision, the Tribunal distinguished between bonus information and performance assessment information. 
It ordered disclosure of certain information relating to the bonuses of the senior employees, the maximum performance-related bonuses to which the chief executive and the communications director were contractually entitled, and the percentage of the maximum available bonus actually paid to certain other members of senior management. The tribunal did not think that disclosure of this information involved an unwarranted interference with their rights and freedoms. It noted the seniority of the position, the high-profile nature of the work, and the fact that senior people within public sector organisations should be aware of the general trend towards openness and transparency, which would have an impact on their positions. The tribunal decided, however, that details of the performance targets which individuals failed to hit to 100% satisfaction should not be disclosed. It said that in each case, disclosure would involve an intrusion into the element of the individual's lives, which, while work-related, had such a direct impact on career progression and personal self-esteem that it would only be warranted if, in addition to the matters of public interest identified, the operation of the remuneration scheme justified significant criticism. So it seems, according to this decision, that even in the realm of public sector pay and performance of senior employees, there is still room to protect the privacy of certain information. There have been a number of decisions of the tribunal about disclosure of names of staff. See, for example, the Ministry of Defence and Rob Evans, which we discussed in episode 8, and the Department for Business, Enterprise and Regulatory Reform and the Information Commissioner and Friends of the Earth, which we discussed in episode 12. In January, disclosure of personal data in a civil service context was considered again by the tribunal. In Dunn and the Information Commissioner and the National Audit Office, the disputed information concerned the NAO's inquiry into the FCO's handling of employee grievances of a whistleblowing nature. It was argued that Section 40 applied, being third-party personal data, and disclosure would be unfair due to the expectations of the complainants that their personal data would not be disclosed and on the distress of they potentially being perceived as troublemakers. The tribunal ruled that junior civil servants' names should not be disclosed, as well as contact details, except for that part of an email address containing the name of a person whose name was otherwise to be disclosed. Junior civil servants' roles or job titles should be disclosed, and details of complaints and criticisms of employees should only be disclosed in sufficiently redacted form. The issue of redaction turned on whether disclosure in redacted form would preserve anonymity or achieve fairness. The tribunal found that disclosure of whistleblowing case information in redacted form would be fair where only those individuals would be able to identify the persons being referred to and those involved would not learn anything from the disclosed material which they would not already know. This case is another instance of the established position that disclosure of the names of civil servants, here grade 5 or above, will generally be fair, whereas those of more junior colleagues would not. The tribunal was clear that no blanket policy should apply and that fairness depends on the particular responsibilities and information which the case is concerned with. Where there is a risk to staff if their names are disclosed, then the public authority will be right to err on the side of caution and withhold the information. In Wilde and the Information Commissioner and the Chief Constable of Hampshire Constabulary, the appellant requested from the Chief Constable dates of pre-hunt meetings in the last five years and the names of police officers attending those meetings with the organisers of the Isle of Wight hunt. 
The police responded providing dates but refused to disclose the names of the officers in attendance. The commissioner considered that the section 40 exemption clearly applied to the names. He concluded that disclosure would result in a breach of the first data protection principle. He accepted that disclosure may lead to the harassment of the officers identified. The tribunal upheld the commissioner's decision. Unlike the early years of freedom of information, requests for commercial information these days are for much more than copies of contracts or tenders. Correspondence, evaluation forms and drafts have all been required to be disclosed. The Commissioner applies a three-tier test to ascertain whether the Section 43 exemption, commercial interests, is engaged. Firstly, are the interests which will be prejudiced commercial? Secondly, what is the nature of the prejudice in question? Thirdly, what is the likelihood of the prejudice occurring? Even if the exemption is engaged, the public interest test has to be applied. In December, the Commissioner ordered the disclosure of information relating to TV licensing contracts between the BBC and Capita Business Services. It followed a Freedom of Information request, which asked for details of any incentives offered by the corporation as part of their contract with Capita over a three-year period. The BBC originally rejected the request, believing that the release of the information would prejudice the commercial interests of the corporation and its contractors. Whilst agreeing that it was entitled to apply this exemption, the Commissioner decided that it is in the public interest for the information to be released and has now ordered full disclosure. The Commissioner ruled that the corporation must be open to public scrutiny to show the many people who regularly watch their programmes, listen to their radio stations and use their website that they continue to provide value for money. In reaching his conclusion, the Commissioner noted the OGC guidance and the Ministry of Justice Assumptions note accompanying it, which sets out 12 areas within a contract which the guidance indicates should normally be disclosed by a public authority in the public interest, because it would further the public's understanding of how services brought with public funds would be delivered and how contracts should run. This includes incentive mechanisms within contracts. That concludes episode 25 of the Freedom of Information podcast. The next podcast will be in June. Before then, you can always catch up on the latest developments in information as well as surveillance law by attending one of my FOI update workshops or downloading my free FOI web seminars. Both carry CPD points for solicitors and legal executives. More details at www.actnow.org.uk. Don't forget, ActNow is now one of the UK's leading providers of courses leading to the ISEB Certificate in Freedom of Information. The next course starts in November in Manchester. If you'd like to know more, please email info at actnow.org.uk. We're now on LinkedIn as well as Twitter. Follow us for the latest information law developments delivered for free direct to your desktop or smartphone. ActNow Training also offers an FOI helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal FOI expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service for you to discuss your FOI as well as your environmental requests and possible responses. Through the helpline, I'll be available to guide you through the relevant areas of law, discuss possible exemptions and how to deal with any complaints. At a time of increasing pressure on public sector budgets, the ActNow Freedom of Information helpline is the most cost-effective solution for your FOI problems. Thank you for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.